I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. The cough made to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio How the soul may be so lonely Hands pressed cold against the phone The young stars are standing Through the south, no need to stop for gas. That's all taken care of by the gas man. And some of it is very beautiful, and some of it has scars, and some of it is ugly. It's a bigot in a bar. You're traveling through the South Park on me and Bon and Charlie B. The night makes a stop by the side of the road for tea. I look up in the distance, branding iron is stuck up in the night sky. It's in the shape of America and it's in flames, but I'm not sure why. Into the cornfield, into the cornfield. We know a secret that happened some time ago. A woman killed a man here. She was in a traveling show. But less, you could say, breasts and body beautiful. But serpents appear from her shoulder blades. That's why the people come into the cornfields. Into the cornfields. Virginia now, it's beautiful and green, the hills and valleys and open skies, it's the, it's the best we've ever seen, We're still sitting by the roadside, waiting for a sign, me and Bon and Charlie B, together for a time, into the cornfield, into the cornfield. Cornfields 
Successful navigation requires a way of fixing latitude and longitude. The invention in the 18th century of the accurate, seaworthy timepieces needed to determine longitude is a famous story. The race was won by John Harrison, a British carpenter. Astrolabes, quadrants, and the sextants that succeeded them are just as important, though. By measuring the elevation above the horizon of the sun at noon. Which the user would do with an astrolabe by suspending the instrument from a cord and pointing the alidade at the solar disk, they permit a ship's latitude to be calculated. Dr. Williams's examination has revealed the marks etched around the astrolabe's circumference at five-degree intervals that allow solar elevations to be gauged. Sky is so heavy. 
my light bulb moment occurred in 2002 when I was reading a memorandum that was sent by the Dean of Arts and Humanities of Durham University to his staff members. And in this memorandum, he told people teaching humanities and liberal arts they should not lecture on controversial and sensitive topics unless they had approval from an ethics committee. And they basically made the point that it was really not a good thing for lecturers to catch students unaware by raising issues to do with abortion or suicide or domestic violence or anything that was to us extraordinary. And I responded to this memo by writing an article for the Times Higher Education Supplement. And to my surprise, a lot of colleagues were saying, well, what's the big deal? You know, sort of, why should we worry about the fact that a dean in a good university, Durham University, tells lecturers to censor themselves and to reorganize their teaching material in such a way that it doesn't really uh, offend the sensibilities of students. Uh, that was a long time ago, and as it happened, the uh, instructions were not implemented. It was too early then, and it would take another 10 years, another 12, 13 years, before what he asked became uh, sort of seen as the convention in many universities. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions. Let's go climb up on the roof In the twilight 360-degree views As we lie down Watch the fading light turn into stars Here you are Go 
the study worked. Basically, volunteers sat in a sound booth rigged with microphones and ate Pringles. When they took a bite, the sound the chip made would be played back to them through headphones. And every so often, the sound would be amplified. What they found was that the louder the sound from the chip, the fresher the volunteer perceived it to be. This led Charles Spence down a road he hadn't yet considered. He started looking into whether or not we could tell what's being poured into a glass by the sound it makes, whether the pitch and tone from opening a can makes the beverage seem fizzier or colder, and whether or not the shape of the plate can make a dessert seem sweeter. He used bacon and egg ice creams to test if listening to the sound the food makes, say sizzling bacon, while you eat it makes the whole thing more flavorful. The Ig Nobel Nutrition Prize is awarded to Massimiliano Zampini of the University of Trento, Italy, and Charles Spence of Oxford University in the UK for electronically modifying the sound of a potato chip to make the person chewing the chip believe it to be crisper and fresher than it really is.
When I was 22 years old, I was lucky enough to find my calling when I fell into making radio stories. At almost the exact same time, I found out that my dad, who I was very, very close to, was gay. I was taken completely by surprise. We were a very tight-knit family, and I was crushed. At some point in one of our strained conversations, my dad mentioned the Stonewall Riots. He told me that one night in 1969, a group of young black and Latino drag queens fought back against the police at a gay bar in Manhattan called the Stonewall Inn, and how this sparked the modern gay rights movement. It was an amazing story, and it piqued my interest. So I decided to pick up my tape recorder and find out more. With the help of a young archivist named Michael Shirker, we tracked down all of the people we could find who had been at the Stonewall Inn that night. Recording these interviews, I saw how the microphone gave me the license to go places I otherwise never would have gone and talk to people I might not otherwise ever have spoken to. I had the privilege of getting to know some of the most amazing, fierce, and courageous human beings I had ever met. It was the first time the story of Stonewall had been told to a national audience. I dedicated the program to my dad. It changed my relationship with him, and it changed my life. Children lose it, and all the children will get stuck. 
get back to the, uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with however many grains of salt you wish that the brown donuts that are circulating around us are not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from the brown donuts. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest, but uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? Do not eat the brown donuts. It's your Bill's big bag of onions. In the gentle morning light, I was cycling my daughters to nursery school on the back of my tricycle. As always, we were talking as we cycled, conversation filling the space between us. Suddenly, there was a sharp and terrible sound. Time slowed down as I watched the road get closer and closer to us. Then a hard jolt and another crack as we hit it. Only then did I realize what had happened and that the voice was mine. We'd been hit by a car from the side. The trike was destroyed, my shoulder was shattered, but my daughters were fine. Not a cut or a bruise between them. Time slowed down. I didn't recognize my cry for my children as my own. And it was a miracle they were fine. I will never take the luck, the grace of this for granted. In the ambulance on the way to the hospital, I was in shock. The pain of my shoulder was excruciating, but the fear of this world was way worse. The paramedic was conscientious and kind, and he could see my pain and my fear. So he gave me the largest intravenous dose of morphine that he could. The drug took hold and bliss. It's not that my shoulder didn't hurt anymore, it did, it just didn't matter. And that overwhelming, suffocating fear, gone. Life was good again, and the gentle morning light returned. You see, it was the first time I used morphine.
who reach for a dictionary or a thesaurus at the first moment of literary puzzlement, the lack of any such book must have been an inconvenience, to say the very least. And yet it was an inconvenience suffered in silence by the best of them, and for a very long time. William Shakespeare, for example, had no access to a dictionary during most of his writing career. Certainly from 1580, when he first began, it was a quarter of a century before any volume might appear in which he could look something up. We've already seen how frequently and flamboyantly Shakespeare contributed words to the language. Dislocate, dwindle and submerge to three more, to add to those I mentioned earlier. But to do so, he had, essentially, either to find such words in other writings, to note down words or expressions that he heard in conversation, or else to invent or conjure words out of the thin air. That's not to say there were no reference books available at all. In the late 16th century bookstore, tables were weighed down with all manner of missals, biographies, histories of the sciences and of art, prayer books, bibles, romances, atlases, and accounts of exotic travel. Shakespeare would have had access to all of these and more. He's known, from a careful statistical examination of his word usages, to have used as a crib a thesaurus edited by the Bishop of Winchester, one Thomas Cooper, and probably also a volume called The Art of Rhetoric, by Thomas Wilson. 
But that is all. Neither Shakespeare nor any of the other great writing minds of the day, Francis Bacon, Edmund Spencer, Christopher Marlowe, John Donne, Ben Jonson, had access to what all of us today would be certain that he would have wanted, the lexical convenience that went by the name that was invented in 1538, a dictionary. Have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well, their father's hell did slowly go by. Them on your dreams The one they picked The one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they Your elders grew high, and so please help them with your youth. They see the truth before they can die. Teach your parents well, their children's hell will slowly go by. Them on your dreams The one they picked The one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they listening to my big bag of onions there has been a real shift in perceptions of what beauty means in fact race relations are under the microscope more than ever there is a real transparent conversation and question of identity and i am loving the international debate hair relaxers have declined in sales by a quarter and black women are now starting to embrace their natural selves feel like I'm part of that movement. With my natural hair out confident and free, I'm thinking about what it means to embrace my culture fully. It's more than hair though. The hair is simply a prerequisite to what's going on in the mind. It's realising, 
truly, truly realizing that my version of beautiful is just as beautiful as everyone else's. Now, when I wake up every morning with a pregnant belly, big and luscious, with my partner resting his head in my Afro hair, there is nothing to hide and there is nothing to fear. My partner is white and I am black. And we are about to embark on raising a mixed race child. I hope this won't be a topic in years to come. I hope I can go into a European salon and be catered to because I am the new European. I also hope we will have a better understanding of each other and my hair, skin, look won't be exotic, different or new. Our culture won't be appropriated upon, but instead celebrated.
interviewer doesn't want to hear a recitation of your resume. By the time he's interviewing you, he's already read your resume. He knows you're qualified. That's not the issue anymore. You wouldn't be in his office if it were. He now wants to hear 25 things from you, 25 secrets you should know before your job interview. He won't tell you what they are. We will. 25 things to say to the interviewer to get the job you want written the way you say them, so you won't forget. You can also glance at the quick summaries just before your interview. Take them to heart, live them, and use them. They'll get you past interviewers, supercharge your career, and enrich your life. Every facet of it, so don't wait another minute. Let's get started now. Uh, before we get started, remember these. Think of each interview as your only interview. This might add to your attention, but it'll focus your mind. Same thing with your cover letter and resume. Except in your cover letter, work in half a dozen of the 25. The interviewer gives you one chance to make an impression, to corral the job. Look good, dress well, act confident, stand tall, speak with passion and a full voice. Look him in the eye, smile and give him a firm handshake.
careful pointed steeple Look to see the lucky number Yes, the wonder of the tumbler Had come up to fame and fortune Singing his tune, my tune, your tune Moving daughters of the gifted On the carpets of the courtrooms Well, the tickets were expensive The show was quite relentless in the square This is not the last one, but it is the most important one. Listen. I cannot tell you how many really important people have said that listening is perhaps the most, the number one most important skill that you could develop. Buddha said, and I'm paraphrasing, if your mouth is open, you're not learning. And Calvin Coolidge said, no man ever listened his way out of a job. (laughs) Why do we not listen to each other? Number one, we'd rather talk. When I'm talking, I'm in control. I don't have to hear anything I'm not interested in. I'm the center of attention. I can bolster my own identity. But there's another reason. We get distracted. The average person talks at about 225 words per minute, but we can listen at up to 500 words per minute. So our minds are filling in those other 275 words. And look, I know it takes effort and energy to actually pay attention to someone. But if you can't do that, you're not in a conversation. You're just two people shouting out barely related sentences in the same place. <laughs> you, have to, you have to listen to one another. Stephen Covey said it very beautifully. He said, most of us don't listen with the intent to understand. We listen with the intent to reply.
you're listening to my big bag of onions. Now, lots of 10-year-old boys see a person doing a cool thing and think, I want to be that. But for Chris, this was way more. Chris was shy, a wallflower. He was a kid living in a Syrian orphanage. He had no parents, very limited access to the outside world. But in that moment, he suddenly saw a future, a person that he wanted to be. Boom, I want to be a DJ. For the next decade, no matter how awful the situation Chris found himself in, this future version of himself was like a beacon. This is like pretty much why I'm alive. When he was in his early teens, Chris spent a year and a half homeless in Damascus and then in Beirut. Just running around, trying to find a job, trying to find something to eat, just trying to survive. It was horrible. Two of my friends died and... uh, Anxiety and depression start kicking me really hard. But always in these dark moments, this image of the DJ that he would one day become would appear in his mind, telling him to keep going. Just keep pushing forward. This image of yourself, how many times a day would you bring that up in your head? Every time I listen to music. (laughs) Hundreds of times a day? Yeah. Eventually, Chris found a shelter to live in. He got a job scrubbing plates and started to assemble elements so that he could make this potential self into an actual self. He got headphones, started watching YouTube videos. Watching, watching, watching. Began teaching himself to make electronic music. Invented a stage name. Lodestia.
I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words, and sound. I'll be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a guppy production for Cone Radio.